Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a vision for a beloved community, a global family marked by equality, justice, and brotherly fellowship. This is a much more demanding vision than mere coexistence or even what we sometimes call reconciliation in the church. The beloved community demands sacrifice and dismantling inequitable systems and giving voice to the marginalized. In this series, From Redeemer City to City, we're talking with pastors and Christian leaders who have experienced building beloved community in and through the local church. We hope these conversations expand your imagination for what holistic ministry can look like in your city. And if you like what you hear, you can find more from these contributors and many others at RedeemerCityToCity.com slash resources. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I'm talking with Vermon and Danae Pierre from Phoenix. Vermon is lead pastor of Roosevelt Community Church, and Danae is executive director of the Surge Network and co-director of City to City North America. We talk about their church's journey as a diverse congregation uh, as they moved from a sort of easy diversity to much more costly diversity. They share very openly with us about their personal and ministry sacrifice that came along with really beginning to name the sin and idolatry of racism and pushing their congregation into deeper and more intimate conversations about those kinds of issues. We also hear about how the churches in Phoenix are growing together into a city network that is increasingly committed to racial justice. Um, This is a really exciting conversation. Thanks for listening. Ramon and Danae, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to be here. Good to be here. All right, so let's get started, uh, level set a little bit, talking about the context of Phoenix. Um, I'm talking to you from New York, and we have been a coronavirus hotspot for like the last four months, and we're very thankful for other parts of the country that are now taking some heat off of us. Uh, Arizona is one of those states, and my home state of Arkansas is one of those states. And, uh, but that may be about all that's on some people's radar for uh, the context of Phoenix. So let's start um, by can you explain to us kind of the social, cultural, political um, context in which you guys uh, operate. Well, I'll start, and Danae is a native of Phoenix, so I'd be glad to hear sort of your perspective, Danae, on this. Um, you know, I'm originally from the East Coast. I was born in New York City, grew up in New Jersey. Uh, and so um, those of you who live in the East Coast, you know how that, that's, that's like, and, and the feel of, of the East Coast, the fast-paced nature of it, et cetera. And Phoenix is an interesting city. I mean, it feels like a, it feels like a very new city. Um, it, it's a city that, uh, you know, I've often joked that finding a Phoenix native is like finding a unicorn um, because so many people from Phoenix seem to come from other places. And that's becoming less and less the case because so many people are moving to Phoenix. But it does give you that sense of a, a city that, that's still sort of, that's rising, right? That's, that's um, you know, to, to use the phrase Phoenix rising. I mean, it's that sense of people are coming um, there's from a lot of different places and they're bringing a lot of the things that they care about into the city. So it feels like a city that's still, to some degree, is finding its identity. Um, however, um, I think there's some things that um, that certainly people in Phoenix care about. Um, I think Phoenix Phoenix does, feels a little bit slower paced type of type of place. Um, it feels a, a place that, uh, well, you know, when it comes to sort of politically, um, it is a more conservative state overall. Uh, but where we are, our church uh, is located downtown. It's definitely way more. Um, uh, let's say more liberal, if I put, or left-leaning, if I put it that way. And you're seeing that influence, I think, increase throughout the state. So it's it's a state that is changing, if, uh, traditionally very conservative, but 
that that shift I think is, is happening as more people move here and as different uh, groups uh, sort of grow here. I mean, certainly the Latino population is very strong here. And so issues related to immigration and other things like that are, are very much prominent, uh, very much a uh, topic of conversation in, uh, in the Phoenix area. The, the, the African-American population overall in the state is, is very low. It's probably like five to 6%. But where we are located in downtown is, is very high. Um, you know, South Phoenix tends to be predominantly uh, black and, uh, and Latino. Uh, South Phoenix, is reason South Phoenix is that way is uh, the effect of redlining. So like many other cities, uh, it has some of those historic uh, effects that are still present uh, in, in a city like Phoenix. Yeah, I would say, I think, I think some of the shifts right now are more um, flashpoints and clashes than it is necessarily uh, changing from one culture to another. Um, so you have, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not like the South in terms of, um, we're not like the South politically. But there is a strong um, independent uh, political, a lot of political passion here. And, um, and, it, and it, is, it does end up getting racialized more often than not, um, especially because we have so many, we have some of the national leaders who have been working on uh, Dream, uh, the DREAM Act and, and immigration reform are in our city, are friends with us, are in our churches. So our um, Latino leaders have been such a strong voice uh, for change uh, for those who've um, been suffering for a very long time in our communities. And um, that, so there's, there, we, have, we, we see those clashes um, in terms of uh, strong anti-immigrant. And I think the things we end up showing up in the national news for are usually making fun of us for something related to uh, people being anti-immigrant or not we had Trump here last night at a at a mega church, um, at packed packed mega church for a Trump rally. Um, so that again, that's not like a good picture of the whole of what's happening in the church here. But but that's 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 not uncommon. Um, and so yeah, so that's there's a lot of tension points, and I think we've experienced at least within the church community trying to work together a lot of need to learn how to build bridges and cross cultural engagement. And reconciliation and um, that's led us into doing a lot of work related to justice and mercy um, because that's how you build bridges with uh, across ethnic lines and parts of our city um, but yeah it's I'd say the, it, Arizona the more I work with other cities throughout the nation Phoenix feels very unique both for the good and the challenges. Well, that's helpful background because we're talking to you guys both as sort of representatives of pastors and local in a local church, but then also involvement in a broader um, citywide network of churches. And so this sounds like a very interesting kind of place to do both of those things, to shepherd a local congregation and to work for citywide collaboration uh, across the kinds of differences that you're describing. Um, but before we kind of talk about the present, I'd love to talk a little about the church's history, uh, Roosevelt Community Church. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, when it was planted, how it was planted, and now the church is a multi-ethnic community, but uh, kind of tell us about the journey of getting there, maybe, and, and then we'll, um, we'll take another step toward the present after that. Yeah. Um, well, I moved to the Phoenix area at the end of 2002. And I was on staff at a church in a more wealthy suburb of Phoenix called Paradise Valley. Uh, I was doing a two-year post-seminary internship. So that was uh, 2003, 2004. Uh, in the midst of that internship, uh, a building in downtown Phoenix got donated towards uh, Calumet Bible Church. That's the name of the church I was uh, interning at. 
Um, and uh, the idea was to start some type of urban ministry in downtown Phoenix that might potentially become a church plant. Downtown Phoenix is really vibrant now. Back then it wasn't as vibrant. It was a depressed area, but uh, there was a strong need for, for ministry work and maybe even better, uh, a church plant. And so we began, uh, over the course of my, my time at Camelback, I was still on staff at Camelback, I began sort of just doing things through, you know, at, looking at that building, different sort of uh, initiatives and, and ministries uh, operating out of that building. And in, in 2004, my internship ended, but by that point, I think there, there was a really strong desire from, from the church that, no, we should, let's, let's legitimately try to plant a church in, in downtown Phoenix. And so I was uh, released from being on staff at Camelback to be a church planning pastor for what became uh, what we called Roosevelt Community Church. So we began meeting Sunday mornings uh, in Easter of 2005. And uh, Town Bible Church was uh, predominantly white, uh, like 95% white. And so when we started Roosevelt, it was, you know, the core group we had was, was, was entirely white. Uh, but uh, myself, as uh, I've always had a strong vision for multi-ethnic ministry, and I was, um, and, you know, I was committed to, to making that happen uh, from the jump. And so, you know, I'll be honest, that, that was a bit of a hard transition, I think, for, for some. Uh, I don't think everyone, you know, not everyone in our core group stayed over the course of time, but I, you know, we were able to, to make that change over the first three years um, to to being multi-ethnic. Um, and, and yeah, I think that began to, well, I would say that that became infused in the DNA of the church, that we would always, uh, diversity was a significant uh, value to us and something that uh, we would always sort of hold dear to us and, and had that be woven to all the things that we did. And that's one of the things I think people most uh, noticed about, continuing to notice most notice about the church, that the diversity of the church. Sadly, because sadly, you know, if, as is true in most of the places in the United States, still a lot of churches aren't particularly diverse. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so that's sort of short version of, of how how we became where we're where we are today. Yeah, and I think of a couple of turning points since then and kind of the national conversation about race and justice. One uh, that actually I keep hearing about a lot is the um, murder of Trayvon Martin. Um, that was actually an interesting turning point for us. Our oldest uh, was born about four days after uh, Trayvon was killed. And then kind of like, so we're kind of going beginning parenting with that in the news. So it's easy for me to track that date as about eight years ago. Um, and then the election of 2016 was another sort of uh, catalytic moment, I think, in some of these com national conversations, again, about um, race, justice, uh, policing, any number of things, right, that's kind of in the air. I'm curious about those turning points for Roosevelt. What, what did you guys experience as a multi-ethnic congregation um, you know, kind of around those in that, in that time horizon? Um, those were difficult moments for us. Um, I think, uh, we, yeah, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm willing to say this. I think we, we were, we were, we were multi, we were multi-ethnic, um, we we're a diverse church, but I think up until Trayvon Martin, you know, we, we, I mean, we engaged on different issues, uh, related to race, but maybe not as deeply as we needed to. Um, I think it was, it could be easy to have been at a church and have a superficial engagement on that. And that, you know, the more I've studied, I've done a lot more study over, I mean, I, well, in some ways, I've, I've done a ton of multi-ethnic ministry at this point. And so uh, I, I think at that point, you know, things had gone, been going really well, but now I've, looking back, I realize almost all multi-ethnic churches face that kind of point of, well, will you stay superficially multi-ethnic or will you go, as uh, some people say, multi-color or will you actually be truly multi-ethnic? Will you actually go deeper 
And deeper means that you actually form relationships that are meaningful and purposeful uh, across your diverse body, which means hearing issues related to race and engaging on those issues. Um, it can be easy to stay very superficial and use sort of uh, Christianese to discuss those issues. Um, and the reality is, I think every multi-ethnic church will, will face some, some flashpoints. For, so for us, um, and probably for a lot of multi-ethnic churches in, in, the, in, the, in the country, Trayvon Martin was definitely one of the first big ones. And obviously then we had Michael Brown, we had Eric Gardner, uh, we had Sandra Blonde, you had all these different things happened. And so that began to emerge within our church, conversations, discussions, particularly the minorities who said, well, this, this is a real issue, we need to talk about it. Uh, and sadly, a number of other people said, well, it's, this is, to talk about these issues might be too, too divisive, at least to talk about them deeply, right? So we began working through that and, and sorting through that. Uh, and then certainly the election point, election uh, of Donald Trump was a huge, I think, uh, so, so I see the Trayvon Martin going to Donald Trump, that was a huge sort of explosion, if I can put it that way. Um, which people were, were definitely, um, uh, well, they, they, they were, <laughs> it was, tension is, is maybe one word, I think it was maybe even deeper than that. Angst, anxiety, all sorts of different issues related to that. And so for us, um, we, uh, and I would say even as a church, we were, you know, especially as a pastor, I wanted to always be sensitive to all the different types of people uh, within our church. Um, but to some degree, we may be centered, uh, the white voice more <laughs> uh, in the sense of like trying to, accommodate and hear where people are coming from. Um, and then you know, just want maybe, maybe an even better way, the conservative voice within our church. And so we did a lot to try to help um, facilitate conversations and, and help us sort of uh, have understanding uh, amongst one another, but understanding that, that that wasn't just saying, hey, we're just gonna agree to disagree, but no, like we're gonna engage on this issue of race and we might need to move in certain directions related to this. And, and for me, it was like saying that some of the things that are happening in our country, um, they're wrong. They're not just sort of, uh, hey, we're just sort of agreeing and disagreeing. There's a middle point there. And so um, we, yeah, we, in the wake of the election, we had a lot of different discussions. We began doing a lot more different things related to that. And the reality is um, there was uh, probably a third of our church, um, well, a third of our church left, I would say, in the wake of the election. Some of it was related to moving other things, but a lot of it was related to uh, a desire to not really engage on those issues. Uh, where the sentiment I heard from some was that they liked the diversity of our church, but didn't, but didn't like it when it came to having to engage on these racial issues. I think, uh, you know, it's the same way you might like uh, the diversity of a uh, McDonald's menu, right? <laughs> or, you know, being, uh, I don't know, go, going to a concert and seeing lots of different people. Um, but to the degree in which we began to say, no, it needs to be deeper than that. And those discussions we have were meant to encourage that, facilitate that. Um, I think people, you know, people, uh, people didn't want that. Uh, and, I think that's that's all that's a tension in multi-ethnic ministry. I think um, there is there's always been historically, I would say, uh, a measure of angst and even unwillingness within the Christian church to engage on these issues and engage it in a way that might make some people uncomfortable. Um, so, but we we were by God's grace, uh, and it will only to say it was extremely hard time. Uh, it hurt. It was costly. It cost us money. Obviously, it cost us people. Um, but I, you know, in the wake of it, I mean, it was, I'm glad we went through it. We are in a way better place now. And I think it came out of just a commitment to say, at the very least, we will engage on these issues, uh, engage on them deeply, because we think if we're gonna be a legitimate church that tries to reach all the peoples that we wanna reach, we have to talk about these things and engage on these things. Yeah, I would also say, I think, I think part of what we experienced was initially people love the idea of being in a multi-ethnic church 
Um, it was kind of trendy and cool and people, it was kind of even early conversations, even nationally, people were talking about multi-ethnic church planting and this being part of the, the process of reconciliation, racial reconciliation. Um, so I think, I think, you know, both church members as well as those of us who are going into church planting were very romantic and captivated by the idea, right? So we didn't really have a, we weren't really equipped or as um, well-formed in seminary on the historic black church. And, and we, yet we were coming with a lot of, with plenty of our own experiences being raised in black or Hispanic culture. Um, but we were formed, you know, we went, you know, we were formed in institutions that didn't necessarily give us the tools to, to do much more than just kind of have this romantic concept of it. So I would say that's as leaders. And then as church members, that same thing of like, oh, let's just kind of enjoy the color in the room. And then what happened was the temperature changed nationally. So when things began to become polarized and divided, um, and you combine that with our own lack of um, experience and, 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 and wisdom on how to lead through that. Um, I do think that there was an awareness for Ramon and I of like, you know, we've been able to be bridge builders and be in all these different diverse spaces um, by learning how to mediate and meet people where they're at. Ramon is very pastoral. And so it's like, you know, and, 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 you know, I'm, 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 um, I, I have that counselor side of me that like, we want to sit with people and like move with them. Um, we weren't, weren't trying to like just kick people out of our church. Um, and these are people that you marry, do marriage counseling with, take the 2 a.m. phone calls. Like, you, you know, funeral, like these are people you do life with, right? And so it wasn't just like, well, if you can't get on this train, get off. And I think in that season of all those, that kind of that perfect storm of what was happening culturally, the shift there, our own lack of being equipped for the task. Um, and then lastly, I think our, our, our gifts of mediating um, meant that people kind of could 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 stay with us for a long time, and and it, there had to come a point, and I think this is where a lot of churches now are at, four years later, where this isn't about moving slowly so people can come along. Like that is a wise leadership principle, but this is actually like we have to name sin and idolatry like it is we can't just like we're not going to be patient on saying like what is underneath the ugliness of racism and white supremacy and the othering that's happening um and so i think i think that's that that was this furnace and pressure cooker so we got quick on the job training um we made plenty of mistakes and yet also had so much grace from our leadership i mean there's so many so much grace that, that um i tell people all the time like it we're in this amazing season four years later where our church has been able to lead through COVID, lead through racial racial tensions, do peacemaking. Um, we're told I mean, very different people, very different opinions. Where has it been? I don't think hardly. I don't think there's been any division through this process. We're experiencing real beautiful community, but that's because four years ago um, we went through this process. We learned, and then our leadership was really patient with us and helped us when as we developed new skills. We could have easily been fired that process. Um, and we saw, we saw a lot of Af African-American and Hispanic pastors have to leave their positions four years ago, um, get labeled as unwise or whatever, you know, too prophetic. Um, and I also think there's things that Ramon saying that a white pastor down the street also saying, um, just by him being African-American, we, ha we had people who were very honest, like I came for diversity and I'm leaving because of diversity. Um, or I just don't trust you that you're that you're that you're being honest about God's word 
how, how can you know when you're, when, you're, when you're speaking from your own experience, AKA you're black, how do we know you're not just, um, you know, so, so they're just, they're, we had all that pain that was happening with very real relationships, people we pastored, um, but God's done a lot in us and, I, and both Ramon and I, and I also think our local church, um, and I'm really grateful for where we're at now. If I can ask you kind of a personal question, Ramon, you mentioned going deeper in relationships, talking more deeply about the sin of racism and the things that underlie that. And I know, you know, you're producing really helpful videos right now, kind of unpacking this systemic racism and things like that. Um, Danae, you're talking about kind of walking patiently with people in a process of understanding the issues. You're doing this as people of color. And so discussing these things with people who are slow to learn them is not like, you know, mulling over the finer points of like, you know, reform theology and isn't this interesting? And what if this, you know, it's not theoretical. It's not, um, it's not a fun thought exercise. Like if this is a costly kind of conversation, not just nationally or not in the abstract, but for you personally. And I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to talk about what that is like, exercising that sort of patience with people on an issue that's not just a matter of intellectual curiosity, but that it is a deeply personal issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the short answer is it's definitely hard. Um, I think it's hard. I think the hardest thing for, for, for me has been uh, having walked with some people for a decade or more in the same church context. Um, feeling that there was a lot of trust and friendship there. In fact, like that, frankly, that I built enough capital, right? Of faithful gospel preaching, right? Preaching on all sorts of different issues that, um, that there were, thinking that there was enough trust and I had built enough sort of capital and friendship that when I then began to talk a little bit more about race, that that would carry weight, that would, that would, that that would think like, well, you know, we've, we trusted Ramon, we talked about all these other issues and, He's been faithful. He's not perfect, but he's been faithful, et cetera. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt when it comes to this particular issue. I think realizing um, that no, that the that talking about race and racism would was enough to nullify <laughs> decade plus, in some cases, or more relationships or friendships, or to 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 make to make people immediately distrust me or accuse me of you know all the different things that people are accusing people of. I mean, that that's that's what hurts personally. I'd say um, that uh, in some ways, I you know even me and, and some and, the, and particularly in some of those scenarios where it was me, I was like the the main black friend for some people, right? A black relationship um, that that people were so easily able to jettison that um, or basically replace, look for another voice that more cohered with what they wanted to hear on that particular issue. Um, I think that that's that hurts. I think it, that's that's always going to hurt. I do lament that. Um, yeah, I feel sorry for that because um, I think it just reminds me that racism is, it's you know, like the Old Testament, the high places, right? That uh, where they, even when they got rid of all the idols, there were always some, some places where they, they, they wanted to hang on to. Um, and I think racism, uh, race, basically the issue of race and racism is one of the high places for America. We just, we're very reluctant to deal with that issue. Um, and seeing that's definitely, I see that obviously in pastoral ministry, but I've seen that personally. Yeah, I would say, I think personally, it's been, um, I think there's a couple things. I think there was the very real relational pain of people that we were deeply close with. So I think um, there was a real harm done. I mean, lobbying for 
reduced salaries and Ramon being fired. Um, I mean, things that were like, you know, long, long emails, um, just kind of attacking gospel centeredness. Um, so, you know, Ramon handled, Ramon's much more gracious and, uh, than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the, you know, I, I'm kind of like the, let's take the earrings out and go fight it outside. <laughs> and so I think, I think there was a mixture of like real harm and real pain that was done from some really, I mean, close, some relatives, even like very close relationships that um, were part of harm. And I then think, though, we were in leadership and um, where I, there was an outer layer of people who were, um, who I didn't have the capacity to be patient with. And so I look back at thing at things I said on Facebook, and I'm like, man, I wish I don't I, I don't know that I wish I would have picked up the phone. Um, you know, people who um, who I think probably might have left regardless, but if we could have maybe, I think there was ways I could have been much more intentional to be centered and calm and not like so angry. I was so angry all the time, and so that's when I look back at like where the Lord did a big work in my heart was really addressing those deeper layers of anger and pain. Um, and even still, I think there, there's people who've come back and ask forgiveness. We've, even this last couple of weeks since George Floyd, we've gotten a few Facebook messages like, hey, I did this four years ago. I was gossiping about you. Like, I didn't listen. So it's been really, we've had over, over the years, we've had people come back um, or people who were going to leave who sat down and said, hey, God, you know, we're not a charismatic church, but like, I had this dream and we're, we're, we were here, to, we were coming here to confront you and we're here to repent. So like there's those holy moments. Um, but I still have a few relationships that are unreconciled that were from that closer, uh, in that closer place. And I, I mean, it comes up, especially in these seasons of like praying and being in being aware of how hard it is to let go of some of those things. And so that's where I think we have to be so so intentional when we're leading and we do think that we're like i i think it's clear that to stand with god and righteousness right now is to address racism and, and white supremacy um and when we can see that clearly and we do it i think it's a very dangerous place in which we can then become self-righteous and detached from like the spirit's call to do it with the posture and tone of jesus with great love even for the people causing harm desiring their own um not just for them to be like proven wrong or or to be like called out or to be exposed or quote unquote canceled but for them to receive the blessing of being in a holy communion with god's people because the sweetness that we have right now with our church family um i'm like man i want you know i want that for people who walked away um or people who are just so critical and harmful around this topic yeah thank you for your honesty in that. And I, I think it highlights a couple of things for me. One is that I, I think what I hear, what I see a lot in social media and in other conversations from um, white pastors in predominantly white churches is that we have to do something, you know, like, finally, I see it, and we need to act and we need to. And I think it's helpful to hear from you that that, um, that acting is, is the right move. And yet it's, uh, we like to think that if we're right, then that everything's going to kind of work out <laughs> for us, right? That the, that being on the right side uh, means that you kind of get a pass on maybe some of this hardship and things. And I think it's really helpful for people to recognize that there will be a cost involved in um, kind of leaning in at a deeper level with these conversations. I also think it's helpful for people to remember uh, 
white pastors of predominantly white churches that that experience is going to be very different for them because even if it is motivated from all the right things, it's still not as deeply personal as leading through this kind of thing as uh, as a person of color and in the kind of experiences that you guys have described. Um, so I appreciate that, uh, your transparency. Um, we, we've talked some about the Local church, uh, Danae, I'm curious through your activity with Surge, uh, the Surge Network in the city, if they're kind of corresponding uh, similar reactions in the, the broader city network in Phoenix uh, in those turning points and kind of what that looked like in terms of the relationships of churches. Yeah, I would say four years ago, it began to feel pretty lonely in the city in terms of real grapefruit happening, but it began to feel like it caters one, two, three of us. I'm not saying this is accurate. This is just, you know, how it felt. Who are engaging um, probably re real seasons of just sorrow and prayer and lament and just thinking, you know what, this is about as good as our white, our white evangelical churches are going to get. Um, and, and I love these churches, care about them, but they're, they're just, it's just, it's too costly. And we're just, too, we're in two different worlds. They also just can't see, right? Um, and they're trying the best they can, but this is what it is. And so the churches, the few churches that were multi-ethnic um, and in the similar context to us, I felt a lot of solidarity um, with and a lot of encouragement, but it felt like being a drop in the midst of something that I kept using, I kept describing as a furnace. It just kept, felt like we were in a furnace, um, but Jesus was present. What's been really amazing is this last four weeks, um, I'm just kind of like, I just feel like almost all day long, I'm like, uh, take your shoes off you're standing on holy ground like the amount of confession and participation and willingness to lose people and not only that but in phoenix in our in surge i'm not seeing pastors take this posture that's normal for for leaders which is like okay i'm confident i'm confident let's run forward with the next steps to fix this problem i'm seeing a lot of like i am not competent i'm not equipped on this task i am definitely insecure and not confident and i need help and they're looking to, I think, leaders like Vermon, Kimberly Duckel co-leads uh, and surge with me here. She's an African-American church planter um, in downtown Phoenix, Anglican. Um, Wayne Winter, another uh, key, all, there's, you know, they're looking to key pastors who've been, who we've been at these tables with for a long time um, to lead. And I think because we went through this journey four years ago, I'm finding that we now all of a sudden have capacity so I'm, ha I'm able to sit with brothers um, who are quite, you know, who are maybe more cautious, concerned, want to talk about conversations that I wouldn't have had the energy to do four years ago, and I barely have the energy to do right now. But because of the fellowship and love and what God has done over the last 10 years together, and now to see them be in a tender space, I just keep thinking, wow, it, 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 I can't describe what I'm watching unfold. I just keep praying for the Lord to keep water and keep the soil soft um, so that stuff can grow um, and that we wouldn't get, get distracted by um, ideology, but you know, we would just really stay focused and centered on, on Jesus and, and what does repair and restoration and reconciliation look like? Can we sit in this uncomfort long enough? So yeah, I'm seeing things happen citywide. Um, you know, it used to be like for every one good story, there was like 20 discouraging ones. And those ones were like, I mean, they were enough to carry us through. Um, but right now it feels like for every 19 good stories, there's like one really tough case uh, to sit in. And I don't know how long it'll last, but I'm, I'm so grateful, so thankful. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, I know that there have been 
demonstrations, uh, protests, marches in Phoenix, like many other cities in America. And um, if people are listening to the podcast, they'll have heard um, a New York City pastor here talk about that with us just recently, uh, Ren Kabinti, talking about being a part of the prayerful protest uh, activity here in the city. I'm, I'm curious how uh, in your church and in the broader city network, how those um, demonstrations in uh, Phoenix have sort of factored into your discipleship and and ministry right now, especially because if you guys are like us, the first time I saw another Christian that I wasn't related to after the coronavirus started was at a protest in Brooklyn. So it was the closest thing to a church service that I had been to since March. <laughs> and uh, so I'm just kind of curious. It, and I had, it hadn't occurred to me that there was, you know, this like the first opportunity for Christian fellowship in the city was this um, was this March. And they expected three or 400. And there were, I think, 2000 that came. And so it was it, yeah, at any rate, it's kind of had me thinking a little bit differently about the opportunity that those events um, provide for people. And I'm curious how you've seen them work in your ministry in Phoenix. Yeah, and I would say the same thing. I, our prayerful protest, um, or we called it a night of confession and lament, um, was a few days after, uh, well, you know, things really br broke out over that weekend. And then a few days later, Tuesday night, we did ours. And we thought we'd have a few hundred. We had probably close to 2,000. Um, from hundreds of different churches and people showed up with signs of like what they were confessing um, that was really powerful and I and and it was it was not an accident I do not believe that our first time gathering is the people of God after months of not and even not being able to take communion um, and even like tie those themes to like church discipline for sin like to be like like we've had like an abstinence we have been uh, abstaining from communion and fellowship and presence. And now we're going to get to be present at this moment together. To me, that's like, I mean, you mm. can't write that. You can't make that stuff up. It's like that <laughs> so clearly right. like the Lord is at work. Um, so we did that. The days that followed, you know, pretty quickly people were like, let's do that again. And we just kind of made a really quick decision. One, our state is not handling COVID anywhere near to the way that um, other states, you know, we're, we don't have COVID. It's a very messy and controversial conversation here. So we didn't want to get it off. We didn't want to get the protest off topic on and somehow start talking about face masks. Two, we felt like we've been doing work with, we have Christian and non-Christian community workers who've been engaged in police reform and community, community advocating for all kinds of things in our city for a long time. And so we don't want to go do a prayer gathering off the side. So we began to invite every night the people who came, we had a list of a, that over a thousand people who came to the prayer, the prayerful gathering of, of churches to say, okay, now come meet us here. We had one night that Ramon did um, a training with several, you know, I think there, I think there was like eight or nine different churches represented. They showed up. He does a training. Why do we protest? What does that look like? And then we join, like, come be a prayerful presence. You know, if you hear things you don't understand, we'll debrief with you afterwards. And we feel like that's the best, getting people engaged with their neighbors to be present. And then it's okay, now go back and be an advocate in your community as people are writing, people are sharing narratives on what's happening at the protests that aren't true. Um, or it's or or if, it, if there are elements of truth, it's more complicated. So let's, let's be equipped. So we had one night that was led by a Black Mothers Forum. It's been working for uh, four years. I think, I think actually longer since Trayvon Martin, they've been working to organize. I had, I had a few white pastors text me that night and they're like, to hear the amount of work and patience and 
organizing that's gone into getting this grassroots group to grow to 40 black women so that right now they can lead is really humbling because we're talking about like you know the white church wants to like do something tomorrow to fix something and you're seeing oh no they spent four to six years doing this or to, or to follow the african-american christian clergy coalition and see these these networks and denominations working together this is six years or a lot or or 40 of work happening with these churches. Um, or to hear, you know, there was a, a night that one of the African-American churches hosted for Black Fathers, um, where Black Fathers were talking about what they're doing. So just to be able to be like, we don't have to actually come up with solutions right now as far as the white evangelical church. Just come, be present, pray, listen, and ask how we can follow, follow the lead of people who've been doing this for a very long time. Um, you know, I want to add too much more to that. I mean, I think uh, local church level, you know, I've been telling people this is this is probably one of the most unique and most powerful, best opportunities we have to be to be all of Jesus in the midst of all that's going on. I, I think um, you know, it, when I think of the conversations I've had with people sort of outside of Christian circles, outside of churches, people who aren't necessarily believers, um, I, I've been amazed by how easy the conversations are now more easy more than any time in my, my ministry of life mm. the degree in which i'm i as a christian i'm willing to talk about uh, issues related to race and racial justice and again i'm not taking off my christian hat and by any means um but uh in some ways I, I, christianity um historic, historic christianity gives us some of the best language and themes uh and and even uh potential ways of of, of of solving this, if we're really, if we're willing to be holistically biblical, let's mm -hmm. say that, um, than, than anyone else. And so mm -hmm. people are, I find people are hungry for that. And certainly we have great models of that. I mean, I think if you look at, at King and, and other leaders during that, during that time period, uh, go back to even you know, Richard Allen, Frederick Douglass, uh, how they, out of uh, a holistic Christian worldview, approached particular issues related to race and how powerful that was and how that was used. Mm. We're in another moment now to do that. So I, I'm, anyways, I'm wanting, I, mm. I want our people to see that, to, to step forward into that. Um, I want them to, to, to equip, you know, begin to equip themselves for that. And so some of our people actually, even on their own, which I'm very proud of them, they've begun working through different materials and books. I know a group of people working through Color of Compromise with Jamar Tisby. There's others who are looking to do other things together. So, being more informed and then saying one of the best places for us to, to, to be is out there uh, and the conversations will come. Hmm. And I think uh, it's been, you know, again, seeing how I've been amazed. I shouldn't have been amazed, but I've been, it's been wild to walk, to watch how um, the, some of the things I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to and talking about, again, as a Christian, how readily received they are by the broader community. Um, so I, I think this is, this is, this is one of those moments. I think we've, Church pastors are always talking about how they want to equip their people to be more missional or evangelistic or all these different things. I mean, my gosh, like there's, there's never been a better moment to do that than now. But if you want that to happen, you have to be willing to engage in the issue of race. If like, you're not willing to do that, then, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think God can still bless those efforts, but this is, I think the, if there's an arena to move into right now, if you want to be evangelistic missional, this is the arena to move into. Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, again that I, I have heard a sense of awakening to that in New York City as well. That this creates a unique pathway for the world to see that the church does actually care about something that that you also care about, and we also have a unique solution um, 
to this problem that seem that that plagues us, um, and that that's a, a an opportune moment for the gospel um, to be able to make that sort of a touch point at a time like this. And I would and I would then just say that then the third is and we don't have to be afraid of confessing our guilt. I think that's the thing that's been most um, eye opening is like wow, so many Christians are afraid of saying we're guilty. But like, that's the last thing Christians need to be afraid of, right? Like we're covered, we're cloaked in Christ's righteousness. So we can be comfortable with saying, yeah, I'm, I am guilty of a sin I don't even know about. I can't even, I can't even, I don't even have the words or the knowledge or the education to know the ways I'm, I'm part of unjust systems and I perpetuate them. So I think there, I think there's something very evangelistic about whatever God is doing in, and I think it's a, I think it's a sensitive season. I think as the Lord is giving us an opportunity to be freed from the fear of repentance, um, that so much beauty could happen. At the same time, I think if we don't in this season have um, the space and the margin to really be in tune with what God is doing among us, that because of the guilt and the shame, as soon as we get tired, because we can't do any more acting actions to like try to make this go away or make or fix it, we're going to go back into just being disconnected or numb or move on with whatever's happening in our middle, in our middle class lives. And that's going to happen. That's not just white, like, like the middle class day to day life will remove us from this conversation um, and from acting in the ways that can bear witness to Jesus. If we don't think of that third part around repentance. Let us stop here. If uh, somebody's listening and they, they say, I'm listening, I'm learning. Uh, I'm ready to do something. What's you know? Where, what do I do now? Um, what advice would you give the the uh, pastor, church planter who really wants to make uh, a change in his or her church or kind of sphere of inf influence? Um, and yeah, what what piece of advice or warning or <laughs> whatever would you offer them right now? Yeah, um, I mean, I think you. I think it's important that that. You personally, as a pastor, um, like really, really believe in these things. It's, it is, it's not just it just can't be a side issue. It just can't be, yeah. We need to have a prayer ministry. When we find someone who can take care of the prayer ministry, uh, they'll have the prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, and then you forget about it. And that's not like that. That won't work for this. And you know, and then you'll get frustrated because minorities will still end up being frustrated with you. People in general will be frustrated with you, and you're like, what? What, what happened here? I thought I engaged on this. Like this isn't one of those sort of side things. This has to be like, no, this is, this, is, this is a moment where this should be among your, let's say, top three ministry priorities. This is one of them, to, to, think, to engage on these issues, to um, think of how I equip our church to be gospel-centered Christians in the midst of these issues and speak to these issues. So you have to sort of have that within yourself, and then you should have it within your leadership. And so it does, it's not going to make sense if you're, particularly if you're a lead pastor or a decision maker, but you don't have anyone around you who's, who's willing to do that. Um, that will cause great deal of tension, I think unnecessary tension within your church. Um, so you have to then begin to really then do the work with your leaders. And you know, honestly, you, may be, you might be someone who's like, yeah, I really, we need to do something, but my leadership isn't there. That might be frustrating to you. You gotta work through that. I mean, I, I, have, I have to say then, yeah, this, that's work, you're, you're, you're already behind the eight ball. You don't have to do some work over the next couple of months. You might not be able to move as quickly into some things, as other people, but that's okay. It's okay to be in a season of like, yeah, we did not do the the work that we should have done in the wake of the election <laughs> that I think all churches should have been doing. Mm. But yeah, 
now's a better, now's a good time as any. Mm-hmm. Do that work and it's okay to be in that space so then you can maybe even do more. So work on yourself, work on your leadership. Then that, I think, uh, positions you to then uh, faithfully lead your church. And so I think you, from there too, a lot of this is assessment. Where's your church really at? So if like your church is really more in the area of like, yeah, we're not sure about these things. And you start with a sermon on like reparations and defunding groups. Like, I just, I mean, like you're not really, yeah. I don't think you're being good to your church. You're like, you're literally dumping them into the deep end. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and there's mm-hmm. that, those, that gets very complicated. That's sort we tend to jump into the places where frankly, where our national conversation is at. You got to make sure you're ready to even have, do we have a shame shared values and understanding before we do that? So if your church is more in that place of like, we, we need to do work before we can do there, like recognize that and then do the work and doing the work means um, conversations, setting up spaces for people to think about and talk about these things. One of the things I really do believe is uh, the sermon is, is not necessarily the best place for people to work out these things, which is it's very tempting to be like shotgun blast all over the congregation. Right. And look, I, I want to be prophetic. Like, I, like, God lays it on your heart, do that. However, um, much of this is work that has to happen in small groups and one-on-ones and studies over time. Uh, and I think God will, God will bless that. So remember the church is not just Sunday morning, right? It can be a Sunday morning can be broader, but then um, begin to think through other ways in which you can begin to help people work through these and think through these things. And the last thing I'd say is then, yeah, identify the leaders that will get you there. And so um, you got to empower people uh, who can help speak to these things and, and lead in these ways. If, again, if you realize, if you really believe strongly the Bible wants us to address these issues in a particular way and lead us in a particular way on, on those type of things, then bring in leaders, raise up leaders who can do that. To the degree in which you let leaders who aren't there and you realize, no, God needs to move us there and you give them power and platform, that just, that's going to be a barrier. So you're going to have to have difficult conversations Difficult, difficult assessments of different different people. We realize some people I think who are unwilling to really engage on those issues. Um, they, they they can't lead in this moment. We'll put it that way. Um, you got to identify the people who are willing to lead in this moment. Yeah, and I'll just kind of quickly to wrap up with what Ramon said is in that area of assessment was as we've been in Surge in Phoenix, we've been giving people three different levels of engagement depending on where they're at. And so one, self-assessment is a lot harder if you're in that, if you're in that first stage of just beginning to educate yourself. Um, and then in general, there's different needs for each group. And so biggest thing I can recommend to pastors and church planters is to hire a consultant to help you. And if you reach out to Cities of North America, we can help do that basic assessment and understand your, I think we have a lot of gifted leaders who can pretty quickly uh, get caught up on your context and connect you to a to a consultant who can help you. If you're in the education level, that's going to be a group. There's a whole group of ministries and leaders and organizations who've emerged who can who are really equipped to help you meet you where you're at. Or if you're kind of transitioning from you've been learning for a long time and now you really need to act because if you don't act, you're not proving that you are not the proof of like repentance and actual change uh, is in the behaviors that are coming right now. So anyone who's been Learning for a long time needs a different kind of consultant right now because this is time for action and change and that money, job positions, um, job descriptions, like structure, all everything has to begin to be thought about. So mm-hmm. reach out to us. We'll connect you to some very qualified, gifted people. Excellent. Thank you guys so much for your time. This uh, It's a pleasure to talk with you. And um, I think this is a really enormously helpful conversation for um, for the folks that we serve. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Brandon.